Good morning. We will continue our study in uh, Ecclesiastes. This is our last uh, week of uh, Sunday school until uh, February. We'll pick back up where we leave off this morning when we come back. So if you will, open Ecclesiastes 7. We'll look at verses 13 through 18 this morning. Ecclesiastes 7, beginning in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Uh, This section of Ecclesiastes uh, is very much like the book of Proverbs, if you've been uh, keeping up uh, on the reading. Uh, This is wisdom for living under heaven. That is uh, from a theocentric worldview. And Hebrew wisdom... Wisdom literature is not mere intellectualism. Uh, The Hebrew thought of wisdom is skillfulness um, in living. And that is uh, its ability to apply God's truth to everyday living, which, which of course involves knowledge of God's truth and the ability to apply that um, to our individual lives and circumstances. So wisdom then is it's an active concept. It's not merely a, a, a mental or intellectual exercise. It's application of truth made known. So the preacher king here is, is singing the praises of wisdom. Last time we concluded with verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 we read, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. So just as an inheritance of wealth can protect against you know, practical difficulties in life, um, similarly, wisdom, properly applied, can protect the soul. That's the idea we left with last, last week. Um, it preserves the life of him who has it, verse 12. That is wisdom. So the higher life, to live the higher life, if you will, here, here on earth... Uh, the better way of living is always protected by wisdom. And that, that's what he's been communicating to us in this section um, of Ecclesiastes. So wisdom can protect people from the hard realities of life as wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Verse 12, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. As compared to um, an, an inheritance in the hand of a fool, he squanders it. He wastes it. It's a disaster. It's kind of like the prodigal son, right? He 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 asks for his inheritance before his father is even dead, 
and he goes off to a far land and he squanders it. By God's grace, he comes to his senses and he returns home. However, all prodigals do not come home. All prodigals do not come home. Which is a sad thing. So he's teaching us here the right way to live, the, the, the right and proper way to look at life, uh, restating the value of, of wisdom um, as like an inheritance. Showing us here that the preacher king, Koleth, who we believe is Solomon, he's not a mystic. He, he's not a mystical guy um, who withdraws from the world and sits in his little den and, and tries to, to figure out the mysteries of life philosophically. Nor is he an ascetic. He's not given to asceticism where he removes himself from the material or physical pleasures of life. We've seen this throughout, amen? He doesn't deny material goods in this life. You know, as, as though the, the denial of them will somehow make you a more spiritual person. That's nonsense. This is practical, concrete exhortation for, for looking at life and living life under heaven. Under the Lord's rule and reign. Now in verses 13 and 14, um, we, we see that wisdom considers God. No man or woman is wise who does not consider their creator. No matter, regardless of how well educated they are. Notice verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now does that sound familiar to anyone? The first time the preacher said this, he was leaving God out of the scenario. Okay, remember that back in chapter 1, verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. So an under the, under the sun view would be more of a fatalistic expression of that reality. So here now, says consider the meaning ponder this reality reflect on this meditate on this and accept this reality of life okay from an under heaven perspective okay here now is is the idea of understanding something and accepting it consider this he says consider this so this is not now an expression of fatalism but we could call this an expression of calvinism amen Calvinism is not limited to five points of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Amen. This is where we grow in a greater understanding of the sovereign Lord who rules and reigns over all of creation. So it's not a fatalistic view. This is a Calvinistic view, which means biblical view. Calvinism means biblicism. A biblical, true, sound view of Almighty God. And that is the details of our lives have been ordained and are being carried out according to God's purposes. So God's sovereignty ordains the affairs of life where His providence 
assures that they happen. Amen? It's the difference between sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty ordains the affairs of this world, that is, God and His sovereignty ordains the affairs of this world throughout time, and providence ensures that they all happen. So the governing affairs of the world are being carried out day by day as God ordained from the beginning. That's what we learn from Scripture. So verse 13, he says, consider, think about, ponder, reflect on the work of God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? Now, we've heard instruction given to us on death, mourning, sorrow, rebuke, patience, you know, in the midst of, of difficulty as we've looked at these chapters of Ecclesiastes And those things are all crooked things. Death, mourning, sorrow. Those are all crooked things brought about in this life that we have no power to fix. We can't raise the dead. Amen? We cannot raise the dead. We, We cannot delete the negative occurrences of life or history. We have we have no power. Now when when he talks about things that are crooked, he's not talking about moral evil here because God could never be the author of evil. Amen. Okay, this we know. So the question is, what creature then has the ability or the power to make straight what the creator has made crooked? That is things in life that are ordained by God and providentially carried out in a bro- broken fallen world. Who, who of us possibly can? Answer, no one. We may want to, we may want to, we may even try to fix these things. But again, we, we can't delete the suffering of the world. These things are, are going to happen. So, remember those people described in verse 10, back in verse 10, who, who thought that former days were better than the present? And the implication being they're, they're ready to quarrel with God. They're, reg- they're, they're ready to quarrel uh, with the Creator. They're ready to quarrel, if you will, with the providence of God. And they're, they're advised to consider the work of God. Not the work of creation, but the work of God's providence. That, that is the effect of divine sovereignty that's being carried out day by day. Whether they're events, weather, nations, rulers, or economies. They're being carried out providentially as God ordained in eternity. Think about those who walk in a crooked way. Think about those like, as I was studying this week, the life of Herod the Great. What an, man, if I described to you the evil of that man, historically, if you look at the evil of that man, he died as an evil, wicked, unbelieving man. He started out life handsome, full of vigor, a builder, a visionary, and he died a miserable, horrific, ugly, literally very stanky death. Like the man 
had an odor about him because he had these, this disease and said his breath was violent. And guards could only stay so long around him because it was a putrefying thing to see and smell. But consider crooked people like that. Consider just the, the common garden variety pagan unbeliever. Who, who can correct them? Who, who can possibly make them another way? You, me, no. If God does not give them grace to convert them and soften their hard hearts, they will remain crooked, bent on iniquity. Amen? They will remain, if God doesn't invade their lives by his grace, they will remain crooked. After all, Romans 9.18 says, He hardens whom he will, and who can resist his will? Now, we don't know what the future holds for us, amen? We, we, we don't know what God has ordained. So, life isn't about what we devise. Amen? It's about what God has ordained. So, this is a call for submission to the providence of God. That's what we're seeing here. He says, consider this, consider it, and accept this reality of life. We don't know whether tomorrow will bring prosperity for us individually or perhaps adversity. So, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, what? Be joyful. Let's rejoice. If it's prosperous, let's rejoice. And in the days of adversity, then consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now, Solomon could only see so far when he wrote this, amen? Now, we, since the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see so much more. Do we not? Amen. Romans 5, 2. In Christ, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now James writes the same thing in his letter. James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in such times as, as these, we, those who are in Christ, can find great comfort. As we run to Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Does that mean all things are good? No. No. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So the message is consistent throughout the Bible. There's wisdom and blessing to be found even in the crooked times. Even in the crooked things. For who can make straight 
what he, God, has made crooked. All are being used for our good, ultimately, the Scripture says. This is what we have to remind one another of. To perfect us in preparation for the eternal life that we already possess. We already possess eternal life. The Lord says in Isaiah 45, I form the light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So, that is to say, if, if you think that your life will at all times make sense because you're a Christian, think again. <laughs> think again. You don't rightly understand his word. Sidney Gray Danis writes this, quote, These crooked things, too, are the work of God. And no one can make straight what God has made crooked. It would be the height of arrogance and foolishness for us to try to change the work of God. Paul claims that we are more than conquerors, not in spite of our suffering, but in our suffering. He explains that this is so because neither death, no matter how tragic, nor life, no matter how difficult, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. End quote. So what the Lord says is that in the midst of it all, he says this, trust me. Trust me. We see that in Scripture throughout. Now, the, the fatalism, a fatalistic view, the fatalistic views of, of hedonism is that fate is an impersonal force. Okay, Fate to, to the, the pagan is, is, is an impersonal force that's at work, you know, in the universe. Now, as children of the one true God, we submit to the providence of God, we submit to his wisdom, and that is the wisdom of a personal God who loves us, amen? Who cares for us, who is caring for us and has our ultimate good in view. That's the difference. So we ought not to fight against providence as the message, but, but accept it, as the, the author says here in this passage. So in the day of prosperity, he says, be joyful. And every pleasure in life is a gift of God, amen? It's all gifts of God. Every fine day, every meaningful conversation, um, our fellowship here, our ability to meet here, every ministry, every good meal, every sunny day, every rainy day, all of these providential blessings that God provides for us, we ought to return praise and thanksgiving for all of them. To thank Him for all of these good things. All of these prosperous blessings. But you know, unfortunately, oftentimes for us, the providential blessings of God, all the positive good stuff, are oftentimes overlooked by us and not even acknowledged. As long as everything's going well, we'll take a lot of credit ourselves. Until... God's providential plan provides crooked things. Then we cry out to him and sometimes even shake our fists. You know, this reality, a friend of mine, he and I, we work out every Monday, most often every Monday together. We've been doing it for 12 years plus. And uh, 
maybe five, five years ago or so, we picked up racquetball, the game racquetball, of which neither one of us are any good at as far as the skill of it goes. We're just totally working off athletic ability. And, that's, and we can tell by the way people watch us in the glass court from outside. <laughs> but we don't care. We have a good time. However, one spiritual truth I've learned as regards this and the providence of God and acknowledging God in, in every good and prosperous thing is that when we, when we play and we make a great shot, you know what we do? Yeah. Yeah. When we make a bad shot, you know what we do? We look at the racket. <laughs> when we make a great shot, we never look at the racket. We take all the credit. Anyway. Moving on. Verses 15 to 18. Um, it, this now sets forth... Uh, the antithesis between righteousness and wickedness. So Koleth now says, these are things I, I haven't merely observed in passing, but I've pondered these things. I've looked at these things. I've reflected on these things. And, and we too must ponder such things. Events and experiences in our very short, brief life. Verse 15, he says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Uh, So the observation here is that the righteous man dies in the midst of his righteousness. Here's a guy who loves the Lord. He walks uprightly, righteously, and he dies in the midst of his righteousness while the wicked man here in the midst of his wickedness has a prolonged life. What's up? Now, the general teaching of Scripture, as we look at an overall view of the, of the Word of God, is that God blesses the righteous with a long life. And we see that the, the, that the wicked are destroyed. I mean, we see these promises in Deuteronomy, the Psalms, the Proverbs. They, they reiterate this general teaching. Solomon says, I, I've observed men, righteous men, who perish as the wicked go on in their wickedness. So the general pattern of Scripture obviously is not universal, amen? And this is what he observes. It's not an absolute guarantee. For the, man, the righteous man or woman's life may be cut short as the wicked seem to prosper. You see this expressed. You hear the despair of the psalmist in Psalm 73. We don't have time to look at it. You can look at it later. But, you know, he has this attitude and then you see in the psalm that the, the, the issues resolved in his mind eventually as you read through the psalm. That, that final judgment in the prosperity of the wicked, he says, their prosperity they had on earth, it will seem like a dream. It was short-lived, although they may have prospered for years or decades in this life. At the final judgment, it will seem like a dream. Now, there's an entire book given to us, is there not? of righteous men being cut off and the wicked prospering? The book of Job. The book of Job. God brings about prosperity as well as adversity. Job came to realize that reality, amen? Did he know what was going on in the beginning at the outset? No. Who allowed it? Who caused it? 
God caused it. The accuser came. The only reason men worship you is because you've blessed them. Have you considered my servant Job? Well, you have a hedge around him. Take it away, he'll curse you to your face. Go ahead and have Adam, the Lord says. Do not touch his flesh. In a day, he loses his family, he loses his livestock, he loses his wealth, he loses it all. And the accuser comes back. What does he say? Touch his flesh and he'll curse you. Have Adam. But you cannot take his life. God orchestrated the whole thing. He loses, he loses all of this within hours. And then his friends, his dear friends, come to him. And to make no mistake, they loved this brother. They loved this. They sat quietly for seven days. They sat with him for, you know, we ought, we ought not to be so hard on them. We always are. Oh, yeah, they didn't. They put me to shame as regards compassion. Seven days without a word. Nevertheless, as you read on, there's a problem with their, his friend's theology. There's a problem with their theology in that they did not recognize the sovereignty of God and that he has the right as the creator to cut off the righteous if he so chooses to do. Or that he has the right to make a man suffer for his own sovereign purposes. That's where we get foggy. It's in the midst of the trials where we get foggy and we forget this stuff. I always get a little bit trepidatious when, when I teach these parts of Scripture. Because I'm like, Lord, I hope you're not preparing me for something like this. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. So, so to, to us, as, as regards Job, the book of Job, God's purposes are very clear in everything that took place because we get to see the behind-the-scenes uh, view of the battle that was going on. And ultimately, Job would bring greater glory to God. Amen? And the attacking, accusing evil one would be put to shame. As he was. So here now, he moves on regarding righteousness and and two forms of evil. And he talks about... He says, do not be overly righteous here. Okay? And do not make yourself too wise. Here, he must be comparing super-righteousness as opposed to presumptuous sin. A lot of commentators refer to this as self-righteousness, but I, I, I don't think it fits the context. I think it has more to do with being like a super-righteous person, which I'll talk about here in a second. He says, do not be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So to be, he says, you know, be not. To be means to become something in your mind. It's to, to go beyond considering yourself something perhaps more than you really are. So he's not saying don't strive to be righteous or holy. Amen? He can't be saying that. Because the Bible instructs us to pursue holiness. Be holy, for God is holy. So we're to pursue righteousness. So 
That would run counter to Jesus' teaching too. You know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. And then after all, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes concludes this book with, you know, fear God and keep his commandments. So it can't mean that. Verse 17 is probably a warning against an excessive preoccupation with outward righteousness. So I believe, you know, in context to the paradoxical world, so context, paradoxical world, the seeming paradoxes of life that the riches, the, the righteous are cut off in the middle of a righteous life and the wicked go on prospering in their evil doing. Verse 15. So the, the two extreme responses to, to this anomaly, okay, since we can't often make sense of, of this seeming paradox of life, We might try to live a super-righteous life thinking that we can force or manipulate God to prolong our days. Or the other extreme is just to become an antinomian, which means to be against law, to be against God's law. So in that context, I believe that's what he's saying. You know, the, the one is to say, okay, if we just... If I just appear to be as righteous as I can and be nitpicky in every little thing of life, God will prolong my life. Or the other end would be to to walk away from a life of faith and trust in the living God and just give yourself over to an antinomian type of lifestyle. The Lord says, woe to both. In Isaiah 5, verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So one one extreme is to have an inflated view of self. The other extreme is to have a deflated view of God's law. You know, Israel was sent into exile because of wickedness. Amen? God judged them in their wickedness. And then later... Israel was destroyed by pharisaical legalism. Two extremes. So this super-righteousness, we might say that it's rigid righteousness, nitpicky, which really, it's not righteousness in itself. I mean, you have the good-mannered, well-dressed people of society who function well, they're the good people because they don't, you know, smoke, they don't drink, they don't chew, and you know the rest, right? They don't go with girls that do. They just, this is the way they are, this is how they appear. Now, now here's a story. This is a true story. They are not from this church. You know, when we took our trip to Israel in 2008, you go with a group of about 30, we went with 30 people. This is a woman from another church who went on a trip like this. No doubt loves Jesus. She loves the Lord. Went on this trip. So you're part of a group. She borrowed a suitcase to go on the trip. She arrives at the airport. You go through the TSA routine, right? You abide. You do what they say. You keep your mouth shut. You go through this and that. You raise your arms and you go through security. 
So when you get to these certain checkpoints, someone will say, is this your suitcase? You know, she borrowed the suitcase. Do you know what they mean when you answer the question? Yes, this is my suitcase. But no, being nitpicky, she borrowed the suitcase and says, well, no, it's not actually. So they make her open the bag. They rifle through every compartment of the bag. And her little nitpicky righteousness held up the whole group and they almost missed their flight. (laughs) Everyone knows what that means. So obsessive, nitpicky, super righteousness is probably the context here. Uh, thinking that if I just do this stuff and act like this and I'm nitpicking and everything, God will prolong my life. I think that's the type of context going on here. God will prolong my life because after all, sometimes the righteous are cut off and the wicked go on living in their wickedness. So let me try this. Right? Christians today face the t- same temptation, amen? Christians do not always live to a ripe old age. True true believers, are they immune to cancer, car accidents, attacks, robberies? No. Disaster, a crashing economy? No. They're not immune to those things. So when they consider this anomaly, fearing that God will punish them, they may try harder to be more righteous. And then they can even become legalistic. You know, this box checked, this box checked, this box checked, and their whole life is these boxes checked off. They're really kind of irritating people. In in Jesus' day, the Pharisees tried to be super righteous people. They, They diced up God's law. They added to God's law. So it was this meticulous outward rules and regulations that that they attempted to live by so as to appear to be something that they really were not. Jesus said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? This is where tradition can sometimes take over and it begins to trump God's word. Jesus said in Matthew 15, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah say of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Super-righteousness is false righteousness. Super-righteousness, I believe here, is a Pharisaic kind of righteousness. And it leads to destruction. Coalesce says it leads to destruction. An obsessive, meticulous drive to appear as righteous, you can only become become consumed in your own self-righteousness. So eventually, I do think it leads to a kind of self-righteousness, but this is how it leads to it, rather than the righteousness given to us in Christ. So your focus is off. It's the, you're the box checker. One commentator, Seau is his name, um, cited by Gradana, says this, The teacher rejects overconfidence in righteousness and wisdom. He has in mind specifically the notion that it is possible for one to be so righteous that one could always avert destruction and extend life. 
The teachers addressing the impossibility of super-righteousness among mortals. That is the hubris that one must avoid. It's prideful self-confidence. It's prideful self, this kind of prideful self-confidence one must avoid. That attitude is the very opposite of the fear of God. True fear of God. Or then conversely, you could be tempted to give up the Christian life and faith altogether and give yourself over to an antinomian kind of life. So in Scripture, it's the fool who despises God's law. It's the fool who rejects godly wisdom. You know, and they start to, to gauge everything in life according to how they think and feel now and not according to the Word of God. So there's two extremes there. Two, two, two groups, two responses that are actually contrary to God's Word where you become some kind of a legalist or an antinomian on the other end. He says, avoid these. Because both, he said, leads to destruction. Therefore, notice he says, take your hand from either of them. Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Both extremes. A sound biblical fear of the Lord. Reject both these extremes. Take your hand from either of them. That is the counsel. And take hold of this. So in order to avoid both extremes is truth. A proper fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Active participle. A continual active fear of the living God. Awe. Reverence, adoration, the fear of the Lord. And that's the central theme of Ecclesiastes, is it not? That's how the book ends. We see it throughout the book. So the the only escape from the vanity of life, the only answer to the questions of life, the only means to a purposeful and meaningful life, here, in in the only escape from these twin dangers that that we just looked at, is to fear God. To fear God is to relate to God as God. (laughs) To relate to God, the sovereign, as God. We stand in awe of His majesty, amen? His majestic beauty. We value, we, we esteem His infinite wisdom. That's the fear of the Lord. Man's chief end is to glorify God and... Enjoy him forever. Question and answer number one, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Philip Ryken, to close, tells of the Scottish theologian Thomas Boston. He was a melancholy man. He's kind of given to depression here, here and there. Prone to seasons of discouragement, poor health. His greatest trial along with his wife was the death of six of their ten children. One of Boston's last sermons was based on the command of Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And he called his sermon, The Crook in the Lot. The Crook in the Lot. Now, Riken goes along. He moves along in his commentary. And he, he calls to remembrance the fact that, that our good shepherd had a crook in his lot. 
called the cross. Came in the shape of a cross. Suffering the crooked cross to make atonement for his own. Trusting the Father, he trusted the Father to straighten things out when he raised him from the dead on the third day. If God could straighten out something as crooked as the cross, Riken says, then he surely can be trusted to do something with the crook in our life. That, Riken goes on to say, was the testimony of James Montgomery Boyce, who gave his, the last time he spoke to his congregation before he died of cancer, the last time he spoke to his congregation at Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, Dr. Boyce was diagnosed with a fatal and aggressive cancer, and he only had weeks to live. This was the crook in his lot. And I'm I'm quoting now. Dr. Boyce raised a question that was based on the sovereignty and the goodness of God. He, He asked, if God does something in your life, he asked his congregation, would you change it? To say this the way Koalath would have said it, if God gave you something crooked, would you make it straight? Well, would you? That's his question. Would you change your disability or disease? Would you change your job or your finances? Would you change your appearance or your abilities or your situation in life? Or would you trust God for all the crooked things in life and wait for him to make them straight, just like Jesus did when he died for you on the cross? Dr. Boyce answered his own rhetorical question by testifying to the goodness of God's sovereign will. He said that if we tried to change what God has done, then it wouldn't be as good. We would only make it worse. The teacher, the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes said something similar. Consider the work of God, he said. Do not try to straighten out what God has made crooked. Our Savior would tell us the same thing. When you consider the work of God, he would say, remember my love for you through the crooked cross and trust our Father to straighten everything out in his own good time. End quote. Says it all. 